I always wear my mask and wash my hands after going home. It's a good tuna, but I think I paid too much. I am the king of the ring. Welcome to the Japan What Podcast, episode 137. I am your host, MatthewPMBigelow.com. Coming at you from the Tomihisa Cho Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan. The armpit of Asia. This is the podcast that covers AI trends in Japan, Society 5.0, rising conflict in the Indo-Pacific, odd items, and more. We thank you for joining today's show. Things are looking up. I think I can. I can. I think I can say that honestly. Things are beginning to look up. There was a uh, a bevy of uh, salary men out and about in groups. Having fun. I've noticed more and more of these groups are out and about having fun. And there's also more and more girls dressing cute between the ages of 18 and 22. These are two kind of contingencies of Japan, like your daily economic readers that tell you if things are going good or bad. When you have a bunch of Japanese salarymen standing around in a circle, laughing with each other any time of the day, that's a good economic signal. And also when you have um, Japanese girls uh, dressing cute or sexy, um, that's also a good economic signal. And for the past four years, those two things were, were missing from the country. And of course, you know, as a, as a straight white male, um, having sexy women around is always a good thing. But for most of my life in Japan, having the circles of salarymen kind of hanging around everywhere was always a little like, what are you doing here? You know, sometimes they stand in front of the ticket gates at the subway stations or they're just milling around and you're like, get out of the way, you know. But um, and I, I say that regrettably because I've realized that I was dismissing positive economic readers and societal readers. And now they're back and I'm glad they're back. I have come full circle on the issue. So uh, you could go to MatthewPMBigelow.com for all of the Japan What Needs for today. We're going to begin with uh, WTF uh, OMG, or is it OMG WTF? A um, couple of choices here, but of course, I'm going to go for the one that has the uh, the, the most... Uh, uh, What's something in the air? The reading the air. The kukiomeo. KY. People in Japan. This comes to us from the Mainichi, Japan's national daily since 1922. People in Japan more worried about smell of others' excrement than their own. Survey. This was published on March 3rd, 2024. And this is being recorded on March 4th, 2024. Do you mind smelling your own poopies? Or would you rather smell someone else's poopies? I'm in the, I, I uh, yeah. You think your S-H's that T don't stick you wakey? You don't think you have a little chocolate starfish? Uh, more people in Japan are concerned about the smell of other people's excrement than their own. A survey by a pharmaceutical company has revealed. Now, if you remember during the COVID era, the tracing of uh, virus through excrement was becoming popularized by China. Uh, they were uh, swabbing uh, the incoming Japanese scientists and diplomats at the time for a short period. Uh, 
And of course, a lot of people said, well, you could learn a lot from excrement. Uh, that's my own personal view of the world. Uh, I, I call me corny, but that's the way it works. That's the way the cookie crumbles. Um, but you could also develop bioweapons eventually because you could understand diet or you could do a um, futuristic probability about uh, people's uh, health uh, records. Like, is this person more likely to develop cancer than this person? Or if you test excrement on mass, uh, you get some really interesting results potentially for the development of pharmaceuticals or for the implementation of predictive uh, deep learning programs that are eager to figure out like, oh, should we begin procuring these ingredients if we predict that there's going to be a super number of people that develop this type of cancer or that develop this type of disease or oh, there's a there's a strange uh, bacteria representing in the biome here that could lead us to X, Y, or Z. So it might smell funny uh, having such surveys being done, but the war is on to understand what's coming out of your chocolate starfish. Taisho Pharmaceutical Co. conducted an online survey on the smell of defecation last December, and 200 men and 200 women aged between 20 to 69 responded. The, res the results were announced on February 27th. A total of 54.8% of the respondents said that they were concerned about the smell after their own bowel movements. Of these, the percentage of men in their 20s to 40s who said they were always concerned was higher than that of women, with 15% of men in their 20s worried about the smell, six times as many as women in their 20s. That's because we all know men's uh, deuces stink a lot more than whatever women do when they're in the toilet. Have you ever come out of a toilet after a woman's been in there and be like, oh, what am I, God, what have you been eating? What's wrong with you? Or are you like, huh, that, that could be, that could, that could have been a poop. I, I wouldn't know. On the other hand, 71.8% of people responded that they have been bothered by the smell of a toilet they entered after someone else had used it. That's almost 30% of the people who um, <laughs> don't mind. That's the, real, that's the real kernel of today's story. The breakdown was 21.8% for often and 50% for occasionally. Regarding defecation, when a person has gone out, 59.3% of all respondents answered that they hold it in as long as possible. The top reason given by 54% of women was that, quote, I don't feel comfortable to defecate while out. While 38.1% of men said, I don't want to sit on a toilet seat in the restroom when I am out, end quote. Now, MatthewPMigelow.com here. I let it rip anytime. I don't, I don't hesitate. I'll walk into your house and be like, where's the shitter I need to go drop something off at the pool? Uh, maybe not quite like that, but I'm pr the way I view it, Animals don't get ass cancer unless they're captive, unless we teach them not to poop. And I think that when you got to poop, you got to poop. And when you hold in and when you try to control your bowels way too much for way too long, you get cancer. That's, of course, not a doctor's opinion. It's a podcaster's opinion. The most common countermeasure for unpleasant orders after a defecation was nothing in particular at 51.9%, followed by flush with water at the same time as defecation at 30.6%. That's what I do when I want to impress somebody. 
It is said that stool is the barometer for one's health. If one's diet is heavy on fatty foods such as meat, bad bacteria increase and an imbalance of intestinal bacteria occurs, resulting in a strong stool order. According to a Taisho pharmaceutical representative, although there are individual differences, taking a drug to regulate... There it is. Told you. Told you. It only begins with lactic acid. Then it begins... Then it's going to be... uh, putting uh, IoT devices into your toilet so that they can sell it to the pharmaceutical industries and insurance actuaries to develop uh, uh, medicine in advance using their deep deep learning algorithms. What are you going to have? Is it will it be cheaper? Are you getting a kickback for this? Taking a drug to regulate lactic acid bacteria, such as the ones offered by the company, for about two weeks is effective in reducing the smell of stools. If there is no effect after about a month of taking the drug, it may be necessary to see a doctor. The survey also revealed some surprising trends. The pharmaceutical company noted, quote, the most distinctive trend was seen among men in their 20s. This segment of men were most likely of any age and a gender group to say that they use portable deodorants to cover the smell of defecation. The company suggested that there may be young men who like to be clean because they value their personal style. Since the percentage of young women taking the medicine to control lactic acid bacteria is low, the company is working to increase awareness of the drug in this demographic. Thank you very much. So that's today's WTF. OMG WTF. Now, what about you? Do you just dump and go? Or do you try to uh, cover up the madness of your ass? having what you're having. It's not necessarily something dangerous and intoxicating. It could be water. All right. We're going to begin today uh, looking at, uh, well, I should be, I should, I would be remiss to say, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say that the Japanese Nikkei broke a historic 40,000 on the stock market today. We're not exactly sure what that means, although a lot of uh, people are a little confused uh, as to the reasons why, but this is the working theory on the Japan What podcast. It's a little bit more theory, well, a little bit more engaged in, in reality than my theories on uh, excrement and toilets. Although this could be just as a crappy of an opinion, but this is like, uh, you know, putting your feet up on the, st- on the stool, <laughs> putting your feet up on a um, ottoman and uh, with a cigar and looking out at the uh, window. It's open a crack and the uh, wind coming in, the light breeze is stirring the, the cigar smoke around in the room and you're kind of going, hmm, what's going on here? Something is up. Why is the Japanese yen so low, but the stock market so high? My working theory is this. China is seeing a massive amount of foreign investment being capped or dissipating. And the idea of investing in China long term for many big companies is now seen as probably not the best idea. By, by the background of this working theory is another working theory that the outbreak of the COVID-19 uh, virus in Wuhan by the Institute, Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, level four biolab, uh, obviously... It's, it's something that's going on there too. But the Chinese government essentially just shut down that entire city. And Wuhan is a manufacturing hub for the world. Everything in the world's supply chains passes through Wuhan. But it's like a thousand miles or 1,500 kilometers. It's like way deep in China. And it's not easily just, you just can't go to Wuhan so easily. I mean, you can, but a lot of people don't unless they have business there. 
And I've seen videos of Wuhan. It's a beautiful city, by the way. Uh, sabbatical, the YouTuber, the vlogger. If you look up sabbatical on YouTube with Wuhan, you will learn a lot about Wuhan just by him walking around and eating stuff on the uh, street food and stuff. It's really fascinating. But because the Chinese government just walked in and closed down like a communist authoritarian government uh, can do, they just shut down Wuhan. And now all of these um, car manufacturers, chip manufacturers, cybersecurity manufacturers, manufacturers of all sorts were left without a crucial, they were left out, out of the supply chain. So they're looking for ways to get out of the supply chain. And that's why Japan is now reaping the benefits. So the yen is very low right now. It's at historic lows. And my theory is that the Bank of Japan is intentionally keeping it low through their fernagling. I don't know what they do. So that it tracks all of the investment that would have been going into China into Japan, which is seen as a secure, a safe, a reliable investment uh, country. There's a lot of manufacturing that goes on here. There's a lot of stability that goes on here as well. And the Japanese, by and large, are an honest and uh, gracious people. Um, so the reason why the Nikkei is going so high is that it's just the, the government and the Bank of Japan are being smart about it. We're going to keep the yen low. We're going to keep our investment open. And we're just going to watch the billions and billions of dollars pour in almost de facto. It's like China's right there, right across the street from us. And uh, we're right here and we we can make stuff too. So why not us? And a lot of investors are going, okay, we're done with China. We need this money to go somewhere. May as well go to Japan. That's kind of the working theory. It's very low level. But again, it's the feet up on the Ottoman, watching the cigar smoke swirl around uh, the breeze that's been caused by lowering the window by a, a crack. All right, that's the. Let's take a look at uh, some more Japanese business here. Um, this one's kind of interesting. Now we have on the flip side of the DK being so high, and we'll move on to other things after this. But I just thought this was interesting: is that the younger generations are being left out of the economic prosperity by uh, a large part. I mean. Young people don't traditionally invest in reliable Japanese stocks in Japan. It's not really seen as something that people do. I mean, if you were in your late teens, early 20s, were you taking your 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 money home that you got from your part-time job or whatever going, I'm going to put it into the Forex? Or you're like, I'm going to get some beers and try to get laid. I was the get beers and get laid type. Not very good at the latter half, mind you. At all. But um, this, when the DK was at its previous high in 1989, basically, if, like young people, old people, everybody was like awash in this crazy bubble economy, going to Hokkaido for lunch, going out, drinking all night, champagne everywhere. It was like, if I could get in a time machine, I would go back to that period of time. It sounds like an amazing, fun time to be alive. But um, now the young people aren't able to enjoy the windfalls of such economic booms. And as a result, we're seeing an exodus, not really, but enough, of uh, Japanese talent leaving Japan and going elsewhere, especially to Australia. This comes to us from abc.net.au. And I believe this would be the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, not the American, uh, the ABC from America. As Japan enters recession, this was published on the February 28th. But again, this is not a breaking news podcast. We analyze trends that are relative to the recent past, to the, the present, 
and then maybe predicting some things for the future. It, it's that type of thing. It's not like, let's react. What is Joe Biden doing? Oh my God. Um, oh my God. As Japan enters recession, some young workers are leaving Tokyo to earn more in Australia. Uh, and this follows a guy. So this is our North Asia correspondent, James Oten and Yubi Asada in Tokyo. Shoma Tanaka moved from Japan to Australia, where he works as a metalworks factory at a metalworks factory and makes content on social media about his income and lifestyle. When Shoma Tanaka moved to Japan from Japan to Australia for a working holiday, he imagined the trip would not become a financial bonanza. The 33-year-old works at a metalworks factory in Sydney and earns so much more money compared to what he would at home. He's been able to save over $200,000 and even purchase a new car for his dad. It's a stark contrast to the cost of living crisis many in Japan are suffering. It's true. Young people are like, whoa, what are we doing here? The population is nosediving. Well, I'm going to cover that later too. What are we, what are we doing here? Then all the old people are like, ah, oh, my stocks are doing very good. Shut up, a younger man. But there is no secret to Shoma's success. It's not a scam or a get-rich-quick scheme. He openly discusses his earnings, costs, and savings on his YouTube channel and other social media platforms. His mission is to help other young Japanese people who are struggling in a country plagued with low wages and economic hardships that has lasted decades. Quote, I'm sending out this message in the hope that it will help people know that there are opportunities, he says. Now, I can relate to him. When I was coming out of university, the University of Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, I had been doing part-time work at a shipping receiving company, and I had a, just got a degree with a, a writing degree in creative writing and journalism. It's like, journalism, nothing. Uh, creative writing, never anything. Shipping and receiving, I, I didn't like that job very much, but I was like, what about like, publishing houses. Could I get a job in the shipping and receiving departments at publishing houses? No, there was like, there was nothing. So I came to Japan and taught English and paid off my loans and started a family. And now I'm not teaching English anymore, but it was a lot better than uh, trying to find something in a, you know, wait for three years for a position to open up at a, at a, at a shipping and receiving department at a publishing house somewhere. I mean, what are you supposed to do, right? What the hell are you supposed to do? Low minimum wage and long hours have young people weighing options. News that Japan has entered a recession made international headlines earlier this month after the company posted two quarters of negative economic growth. The announcement cost Japan its place in the, as the third largest economy, falling fourth behind Germany. I've covered this before. And it's not that Germany is doing very well. They're shutting off their nuclear power plants. Their um, import energy costs are very um, uncertain right now with the bombing of the Nord Stream pipelines. And Germany is trying to import everything from like Qatar and from America. But then due to the shipping supply wars, Germany's supply is also like iffy. Uh, so there's like Serbia or somewhere like that that's able to refine Russian oil and, and energy and, and send it back into the EU. But again, is that, a, is that a reliable import? It's not. So yeah, we're behind Germany now, but it's not because Germany is doing well. We're just both doing worse, but one is doing more worse or worser than the other. But the country's economic problems are not new. Japan has endured a sluggish economy, and its economic performance routinely rates worst among the wealthy G7 nations. The minimum wage is also low. 
Um, But Shoma Tanaka worked various farm jobs after moving to Australia in 2019 before finding his current job, which pays about $45 an hour and extra on weekends. Now, if you can make $45 an hour, uh, what's that in terms of a Japanese yen? That's 45 uh, Australia, 45 AUD in JPY. Oh, that's about 4,500 yen. That's really good wage in Japan, to be honest with you. The cost of living is a lot lower than many other places in the world. But um, if you are making $45 an hour in Japan, I you're doing actually very well for yourself, especially if you could do it outside of uh, Tokyo or many of the major metropolitan centers. He said the cost of living in Australia was higher, but with some frugality, it's been enough to offset the extra costs. Um, and it goes on from there. Uh, working holiday visa. Uh, 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 oh, this is what it is. Uh, this is there's a graph that I'm going to put up onto MatthewPMBigelow.com, and it's uh, about um, the amount of working holiday uh, visas that are being granted from Australia to um, Japanese. So it says last year was the most popular on record for working holiday maker visas for Japanese citizens. For 2023 to 2024, there have already been nine thousand, about 8,500 visas granted. This kind of this is a chart that goes back to 2005 and 2006, where uh, uh, 9,500 were granted for that year. Of course, during COVID, it went way down, but now for 2022 to 2023, it's up to just over 14,000. So from, you know, uh, what would be the 10-year mark? So that would be 2012. In 2011 to 2012, there was about 9,000 issued, but in 2022 to 2023, there's fifteen about 14,000. 398 issued. So we could kind of see that there's this upward tick of Japanese people looking at their opportunities in Japan and saying, what, I'm supposed to make $15 an hour and raise a family and have my wife work for $15 an hour? Where are we going to have this happen? The um, I, I believe that there's a, such a top-heavy cost going on right now with the Japanese economy for its elderly citizens, and the opportunities are so low for the younger generations uh, because so much of the of, of everything is imported and exported, and it's not domestically manufactured. There are some industries like shipping or Toyota and stuff like that, and it's not to say that there aren't opportunities, but. A lot of the opportunities just aren't there anymore. And uh, we're also seeing a massive amount of uh, labor come in from Vietnam and and the Philippines. And they're going to be competing for the same uh, lower wages. Uh, I mean, the domestic population for of youngsters is going to be competing in those fields that those immigrants landed for the the, the lower wages than the uh, the natives. So there's that there's that going on as well. So that's going to be it for the Japan economy for today. I didn't want to do too much, but I just thought it was interesting that as the the yen uh, tumbles to historic lows and the Nikkei uh, soars to record highs, we have the younger generation that's caught in the middle that often don't know what to do. And many younger men are looking abroad for their opportunities, which are lacking on the home front. Here we go.
Let's take a look at Japan Society 5.0. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. What? Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Oh. Society 5.0, a technology based, human centered society. What? The fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. Oh. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit anyone, anytime. Oh. We will have access to the latest medical advancements at a low cost, no matter where we are. What? AI and robots will enhance human ability and expand our infinite possibilities, helping us enjoy more fulfilling lives. Society 5.0. For the betterment of human lives. All right. So that is, of course, the uh, promotional video from YouTube uh, issued by the Japanese government for their Japan Society 5.0 initiative. It's an umbrella term for all things AI or moving from a people sitting at their laptops to people uh, integrating with cloud computing while on the go Um and wireless. So taking all the siloed information and making it distributable across all platforms. Uh, I, I came across this when I was working as a English teacher for a telecommunications company from 2015 to 2020. And uh, at that company, I was basically a, a AI trends researcher that I would take all that English material and show it to their employees. Sometimes it got pretty weird because at that time, AI isn't what it is today. Um, and uh, anyway, so I've been following this for about 10 years now, um, and it goes on and on from there. But in that uh, promotional video, it mentions the aspect of uh, medical AI. And that's one of the key points for AI. Uh, a lot of the times the stuff that AI gets wrong is opinion-based or um, when uh, people have their political biases kick in or racial biases kick in, the Google uh drawer, the AI large language model that takes your text prompt and then changes your text prompt and shows you something else besides what you wanted to sh to show you is a classic example of um, AI gone uh, amiss. Uh, that they actually will change your prompt. So you will say something like classic is like, uh, show me a uh, Viking. And uh, the uh, AI is like, oh, here's a Viking. And it shows like an Asian woman dressed up like a Viking. You're like, what, what is that? Well, investigations have shown that when you type in show me a Viking, the um, AI will have a layer in it by composed by the freakazoids over at Google, and they will change your prompt to say, show me a diverse AI uh, Viking or something like that. And then that's why you get these results that you weren't looking for. And Google has been doing this for years with search. The other typical example was in Google Chrome. I wonder if they still do it. It is um, if you look for white family in the image search, it will not show you a white family. They might have changed it now after the controversy has hit. Yeah, they're, they're showing me white families now. Uh, I just did an image search. They're showing a lot of white families. But when I did this search, uh, like uh, four or five years ago, it would be almost no white families. In fact, it would be like 
black families and or, or integrated families. Then he would show ask like show Indian families, Korean families, Japanese families. And the only search that would get manipulated was the white family. Now I don't care if Google wants to do this, and I'm not going to say they're they're disseminating or they're they're killing the white people. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that. There are layers inside of Google that take what you search for and then change it or manipulate it. And because it's software, not hardware, they can then remove those uh, layers or install them. You can just click on a on a on a on an interactive display uh, and just say uh, remove this, and now you'll see white people again. They could easily just tomorrow put that prompt uh, altering uh, alteration uh, software uh, tool. Uh, click it back on and then they would not show you white people anymore. Not that I care. I'm not saying I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> Google, but they've been doing this for years and they have all these uh, diversity initiatives inside the company. And that's totally their uh, right to do so. And I'm not going to say they can't do it. I've been doing, I, because of this, all this research I've been doing, I've been quite familiar with the various biases from each company. And depending on what I'm searching for, I use alternative website searches or or I'll use Google's Chrome or, or whatever. And I just kind of disseminate my uh, internet experience so that I'm not reliant on just one major funnel for all my information. I've been doing that for like 10 years now. And it's pretty good. I can parse the data a lot better. But anyways, um, but so well, the reason that medical AI can be a lot more reliable is that, well, there is activism within the medical communities. The medical data itself is really standardized. So if you have uh, medical procedures at hospital A, hospital B, hospital C, hospital D, they're probably going to be using very similar language and uh, storage mechanisms for their data centers or wherever they're storing their data for each operation or a medical issue. Uh, if you have an ear infection, like tinnitus, it's going to be tinnitus, tinnitus, tinnitus. Now, there might be like a tinnitus expert who might use a more specific example of tinnitus, but but it's not going to be like, his ears are freaking crazy. There's not going to be a disparity of vocabulary or register going into the database. So AI can actually be uh, very useful for the medical fields because of the standardization of the vocabulary and approaches and just how uh, routine doctors are. Like they're routine people. They just store routines in their brains and their brains are operating on this routine and they just execute it flawlessly one after another, if more or less. Uh, and that's why, that's why AI has much application for the medical fields. This comes to us from NHK. It's, it's from uh, late February, but it's, um, it's, it's platforming AI systems. AI system supports diagnosis of intractable and rare diseases. Free website now available. Kyoto University, a major IT company, and others have developed a system that uses AI to find candidate disease names based on patient symptoms and supports doctors' diagnosis for intractable and rare diseases that are difficult to diagnose. Uh, rating your bowels would be uh, useful for that too, by the way. Uh, this is called Rare Disease Finder, developed by a research group including Kyoto University and the major IT company, Japan IBM. Is a system, Nazis, is a system that uses AI to suggest candidates for likely intractable and rare diseases based on the patient's symptoms. The 
AI learns large-scale databases and medical papers on intractable and rare diseases, and based on the patient's symptoms inputs, it uh, suggests possible disease names from approximately 10,000 intractable and rare diseases. Uh, these diseases are difficult to diagnose due to the small number of cases, and it can take a long time for patients to receive appropriate treatment. This is another great point for um, AI uh, deep learning in medical papers. Um, if you have these disparate journals that never interact with each other, with a readership that never interacts with each other, you have all this research going on, and it's not meeting each other. But with by compiling all this into a database, now you have um, a whole plethora of data that is collected under one one umbrella for the research and application of such things as rare diseases. Um, this was a uh, one of the major breakthroughs that I realized because if everything is siloed in these tiny research departments all over the world, there's a lot to be missed when you're looking for solutions for diseases that are not easy to deal with, but maybe they could be easy to deal with. There's a slight percentage of the population that has them, but once you compile it all into one place, now you can understand your blood type, your history, your diet. Now maybe the doctor that was a specialist in the area is not a specialist in another area, but a doctor that's a specialist in another area, but kind of a specialist in the rare diseases area. Maybe that person has some extra knowledge as well that could be incorporated into the data set. So you get um, not only like the direct correlations, but maybe some indirect correlations as well. So if you're a person that has multiple diseases and you're seeing a doctor that's not really good at all of those diseases. Well, what if what if what if that doctor had access to a database that had um, that had a whole bunch of correlations between the disease that you that he's treating you for, but also now has can become like an expert very quickly in the all in the, in the extra diseases you have or something like that. So the AI uh, language systems or large language models or deep learning models can be very useful for this type of thing. Uh, Professor Fumiko Matsuda of Kyoto University Graduate School of Medicine said, By supporting diagnosis, we aim to connect patients suffering from symptoms to specialist treatment as soon as possible. Yeah, instead of having to root through all those books as well for a doctor who's probably not really like motivated to do so, by having it at their fingertips, they might, they might be able to find a more reliable treatment for patients accelerated months and months and months in advance. So, uh, instead of getting all the books out and highlighting the similar words to each other or downloading all the PDFs and then like doing word searches and then compiling them, if all that is done in advance and the doctor simply has to find the correlations in a database using prompts and AI and, 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 and so on, they might be able to find uh, much better uh, treatments for people. I'm very strong on medical AI, by the way. Very, very strong. The The amount of admin in hospitals that just simply are, might be good at one thing but not good at another is very high. And if you could remove the human error from such thing and just give accurate data compiled very uh, diligently into the hands of doctors and specialists and people who treat diseases, they, they would remove layers and layers and layers of human wait time and finding more treatment for more people. And then it puts the, this like dangerous dystopian technology into the hands of people who can help people instead of um, 
like creating Skynet or something weird like that. Everybody's like so worried about Skynet. Well, what if it's just a doctor with an advanced search tool that could help people treat their diseases more quickly? How about that? Okay, so that's AI. And again, this is going to be uh, posted at MatthewPMigolo.com. Now, another um, thing that's connected to medical AI that I'm now totally against, I'm against this. Um, this is, uh, bu- 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 there's the my number card in Japan. And the my number card is like your every card. It's what it's aiming to be. Your my number is your digital ID. But uh, I have a my number card and all it does for me is create more paperwork. I wish it didn't. I wish that I could take my my number card and uh, have, have it do something other than people give me paperwork for it. That's supposed to be this digital revolutionary tool issued by the government to remove paperwork. But all it does is make more paperwork. But opening an account, this comes to us from the Nikkei Shimba, translated via uh, Google Chrome. So we'll see how the uh, hallucinations are with this AI translation. Opening an account can be completed with a My Number equipped smartphone by the end of summer 2025. So there's this like an idea where you have to have the download the government data onto your phone via an app. How? Now, my phone is expensive. <laughs> it's, I pay for the data. I pay for the, the 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 plan. I pay a monthly fee. This is like, it's expensive. It's like, it's quite expensive. It's 150 bucks a month. Why should the government expect me to store using my money, right? Using my data. Why should, it, why should I be storing it on my phone? Why does it become my responsibility now? And I was kind of thinking about it. Well, you also have your identification in a wallet in my pocket. And that wallet only has a certain amount of space. And you put the card in your wallet. And it's like similar to an app taking up about of space on your phone with the bandwidth and all that. It's comparable. But what if, but my phone can't be hacked. It can be stolen. But what are the odds of somebody getting my uh, my residence card, like reverse engineering a fake copy of me and going crazy and, and creating some sort of alternative pod. Like, I don't I don't see the dangers in it, but it, what if the database of everybody's my number cards and all of their medical information is stored and it gets hacked? Well, then all of that information for the Chinese could be used to make bioweapons for all I care, for all I know. Um, so there's this idea. While I don't want the digital card that's supposed to make digital things more digital, instead giving me more paperwork, because that's all it ever does, there's the only alternative for the government to force me to put, make, turn my smartphone into a government device. This is the, like, it's a real issue with me because it's my personal phone. It's like, it's like saying, your company says like, hey, we want to contact you anytime. So instead of giving you a phone, we want your address and your phone number, and we want all of your data, and we're going to store it here, but we're also going to put it on an app where you're going to put it on your phone, and then we're going to contact you anytime we want. You'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? That's a terrible idea. Who, who the hell are you? There, there would be like a massive amount of backlash. 
So let's just take a look at it. Uh, the digital agency will allow all functions of the My Number card to be installed on smartphones. <laughs> By the way, the president, uh, the prime minister of Japan, Kishida, and a whole bunch of his administration have just had a lot of their communiques uh, hacked and stolen by Chinese hackers, apparently, very recently. So these are the people that are saying, now we want you to put all your medical information on your phone because our servers are going to be very secure. Japanese government is not very good at understanding how foreign criminal gangs exploit existing loopholes because Japanese people are good at doing a certain type of crime, but they might not be aware of the type of loopholes they are opening up that other hackers or other criminal gangs from other nations might be able to exploit very easily. So I don't trust them at all with this. And why should I have my medical information stored digitally on my phone? What What's the security measures that are going to be put into this? There is no need to read or take a photo of a card when creating a bank or securities account online. Even if you do not have a physical card at hand, you can perform various procedures using a single smartphone. The cabinet approved a bill to revise the My Number Act on the 5th. When was this released? Uh, March 2nd, 2024. This, this would be, I don't know, on the 5th to, ex, uh, to expand functions installed on smartphones. And it will be submitted to the current diet session. The bill stipulates that it will come into force within one year of enactment and will be implemented by summer 2025. So the rest of it's uh, behind a paywall. I'm not going to really mention it too much. These, pe these people that work for these organizations, such as the Nikkei Shimbun, most of the reporters reporting on this, they just report on what the government's doing. So like you expect some information about cybersecurity or the type of AI that they're going to use. Ne never, never. They just, they ask the government, is this going to be secure? And the government was like, yes, we will use very secure measures to protect our citizens' data. By the way, all of our data was just hacked the other day, but now I want you to install this on your phone because we believe in ourselves. Yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> So we have medical AI for researchers that can be useful for uh, doctors in hospitals for searching diseases. And as long as the names of everybody are omitted, then you don't really know like an age and a, and a work history or something like that. It's anonymized. But if it's your own data on your own phone, is it encrypted? How is it encrypted? Governments hate encryption technology, by the way. They're not very, some of them are good at it, but by and large, I don't think they want to provide their own citizens with encryptment technology, encryption technology. So, all right. So there's that. The, the, the two flip sides is what we do on this podcast. Um, this one is actually probably a uh, major one we should cover for today. And this one is the robots. Robots. Uh, hold on a second here. I wanted to cover this one a couple of weeks ago, but I wanted to wait until the deployment um, was well on its way just to avoid any kind of like, uh, you know, prediction failures or something like that. This article is available in many English versions, but I'm using a Japanese one because I sometimes find that these um, Japanese websites or news sites 
this one's from X Tech. It's from DK as well, but EK X Tech sometimes have a little bit more insight or a little bit more uh, careful approach than like CNBC or something like that. Anyways, this is Uber starts delivering food in Tokyo, solving delivery manpower shortage with robots. That's the headline. The Japanese subsidiary of Uber Eats in the U.S. will begin delivery services using autonomous mobile robots in some areas of Tokyo in March 2024. This is the second country in which Uber Eats operates a delivery service using robots following the U.S. Normally, delivery workers ride bicycles or motorbikes to deliver food and other items. But by having robots take on some of the duties, the duties, the aim is to alleviate the labor shortage. I'll be posting some pictures of this uh, delivery robot uh, onto MatthewPMiglo.com. The robots to be introduced will be manufactured by American startup Kartken and will be operated by Mitsubishi Electric. In Japan, due to the revision of the Road Traffic Act in April 2023, small and low-speed robots can be used on public roads, sidewalks, as long as they meet the safety standards set by the Robot Delivery Association and are notified to the prefecture in charge. Uh, Mitsubishi Electric made some hardware modifications to make the American-made robot suitable for use in Japan. That's very smart, by the way, because American roads and uh, Japanese roads are very different from each other. The vehicle passed the safety standards compliant test only during daytime driving and cannot be driven at night. So you can't be hammered and be like, get to my house, robot. The robot uses AI to detect obstacles and navigate autonomously. However, according to the Road Traffic Act, the robot must be monitored and operated remotely, and a Mitsubishi electric operator will be in charge of this during delivery. To protect privacy, the images captured by the robot's camera are masked to prevent passersby from being uh, identified as individuals. So the you're not allowed to just film everybody on the streets of Japan. People have a right to expect to be anonymous when they're outside. Uh, that's kind of an interesting differentiation from uh, a Canadian or U.S. style of, you know, just filming wherever you want to go. Um, And also the idea that uh, the robots must be monitored remotely is a regulatory layer that's been installed because if the robot hits somebody and goes crazy or starts spinning around and around and around and there's no remote operator people will immediately lose trust in such services. But if there's somebody there to like stop the robot and, and, and send somebody to pick up the robot, well, that kind of introduces like a, there's a, there's a management aspect in case things go wrong where the robot will be handled by people very swiftly. Uh, I don't know where that this robot is being used uh, right now. Um, uh, but it's probably an area of town that has a lot of business inside of it and not a lot of crime. So that's going to be the AI. Oh, geez. What's that? I just noticed another headline. Should we just open it and see what it is? Read the headline. Comprehensive understanding and development support guide for introducing edge AI to the field in a short period of time. (laughs) Okay. I'm interested in such things, but it's not prepared for the podcast. Anything else? Um, there's a lot, but how much time do we have left here? Are we running out of time already? We are. Okay, we could do one more. I'll, I'll do. I'll do. Nope, nope. I'll, I'll cover. I'll cover the rest of this Japan Society 5.0 in the next uh, podcast. Here, let's go. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. 
Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. The fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges. All right, let's take a look a little bit at uh, China. That'll be the last thing for today. Um, this is involving uh, China dumping a lot of its uh, EVs into various countries around the world at very low prices. Uh, we've got a lot from Nikkei. This is Nikkei Asia, which is a globalist hellhole. BYD expands Japan exposure with more EV models and dealership network. Uh, if you look on the uh, Google Maps these days and you look at like uh, Google Maps um, and put in like BYD dealership into Tokyo, BYD dealer uh, ship Tokyo, you'll just suddenly it's like, there's quite a lot. There's uh, one, two, three, four, five, five or six. There's like six or seven. There's like there's about ten now. So in Tokyo, there's suddenly a a vast amount of Chinese EV auto dealerships. I don't know how they managed to pull it off, but they did. Uh, these are in areas that are outside of the Tokyo. Uh, main city, but also very close to areas in like Shinagawa, also very close to areas in uh, uh, near uh, Ogikubo uh, there. And so anyways, Tokyo, BYD has announced that it will launch two more electric vehicle models in Japan by 2026, as the automaker hopes to shake up the world's fourth largest auto market dominated by legacy domestic automakers. See, that's why we can say Nikkei is a globalist hellhole. Legacy domestic automakers. Is that what Nissan and Subaru really are? They're legacy. And, and BYD is this amazing new Chinese startup. <laughs> Japan is globally an auto kingdom, and our participation is changing the nation's auto industry, which is meaningful and has been welcomed. Uh, Liu Zhuiliang, uh, general manager of BYD sales in Asia Pacific, told Nikkei Asia on Friday on the sidelines of the automakers event in Tokyo. Consumers have more options to choose from among EVs, and the increase of fresh EVs is transforming society as by making cities quieter, he said. The Chinese company entered Japan's passenger car market in 2023. So far, it has launched two models, the flagship Ato 3 mid-sized sport utility vehicle and the Dolphin compact hatchback. The third model, the Seal Sedan, is scheduled to be launched in June. Quote, we want to further accelerate momentum in a larger business this year. Uh, BYD Auto Japan President Atsuki Tofukuji told reporters at an event in Tokyo. Um, Tofuki said that around 1,700 BYD cars have been registered in Japan, and it is a decent figure considering that we have started from zero. Um, there we go. So it kind of goes on from there. The article is pretty long. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, but 
I remember uh, there's this uh, YouTuber. His name is uh, Serpent uh, South Africa. I always called it Serpent Za. And he's been a China watcher. He lived in China and made a lot of China documentaries. I used to watch his YouTube uh, China travels a lot on his motorbikes. Very clever guy. And he was showed some videos of uh, Chinese dumping these BYD EVs in China where they... They just take like thousands of these cars and park them in fields that are fallow and leave them there. And that's considered sales because they're producing them and shipping them. And even though nobody's using them, even though you open up the car doors and the plastic is still on the seats, BYD is kind of dumping their uh, EVs all over the world. And we're not really sure about their safety standards. The idea of these batteries kind of exploding or the cost of replacing them is a major factor on the consumer side for EVs. I just think it's kind of unusual or a little bit strange even that uh, they just they are managing to make inroads wherever they go with the world, seemingly with little resistance or anything. They're just like, nope, Chinese EV BYD cars are now here and here's 10 dealerships in your city. You're like, what? Where did that come from? Uh, but there's only 1,700 of them that are being uh, purchased so far in Japan. Anyways, it kind of stinks, to be honest. It sounds like subsidies. It sounds like government corruption. And it sounds like a whole bunch of money talking. Uh, but I think a lot of, to go back to the beginning of this podcast, excrement is going to be walking. 49.7% of all respondents to the Japan What podcast said so. So the survey is out. BYD, is it is it amazing? Or is it just a staking pile of Chinese manufacturing manure? So thank you for listening to the Japan What Podcast. Remember to go to Matthew P.M. I've got to stop talking. <laughs> Remember to go to MatthewPMBigelow.com to get all the links, the, the photos, and more. Donation ideas. We are part of the podcasting 2.0 infrastructure. Get rid of your legacy apps for the podcast and download a new podcast app. Go to podcastapps.com or just look up podcasting 2.0. These are uh, censorship-proof protocols that are being developed by people who are tired of the censorship going on with the big tech industry uh, where people just want to say what they have to say without kind of, they can be kind of dicks about it, but you're not, you're not trying to like, you know, adjust the, the scales of society. And then YouTube comes down and says, nope, third strike, you're out. You're like, I didn't even know what that means. So all of these things are possible. But with the with the podcasting 2.0 apps, it circum, circumvents all of that uh, censorship. And even if you want to use your Spotify, I get it. You, you want to use your 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 main app, that that's fine. But you should have, probably have a resiliency app as a backup I use Podverse. There's also Fountain App. And these are uh, very nice looking, very well designed. And you could also send Bitcoin through them from you with your GetAlby wallet to the Bitcoin recipient, which would be the podcaster in this case, uh, like me. Or you could also go to PayPal and say paypal.me forward slash JapanWT. That's paypal.me forward slash JapanWT. So thank you very much for tuning in today to the Japan What Podcast, episode 100 and is it 36 or 37? Oh my goodness. Whatever it is, thank you. You found it. Coming at you from the Tomihisa Cho Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan.
the armpit of Asia. I mean, the a very friendly and heartful Ja Bata De. Yes. Yeah.